Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. And today I'm going to tell you guys about the Lava Lake murders. So pour yourselves a strong cup of fire department coffee and let's dive in. In the winter of 1923 and 1924, three men, Ed Nichols, who was 50 years old, Roy Wilson, 35 years old, and Dewey Morris, 25 years old, were staying in a cabin in Central Oregon. Wilson and Morris had worked as loggers for the Brooks Scanlon Company. Um, They were experienced outdoorsmen, and their friend, Ed Nichols, had just gotten a job as a caretaker of the lakeside cabin that they were going to stay in. It was a cabin and a fox farm owned by Ed Logan, who was also a logging contractor. The three men were going to stay in the cabin for the winter and take care of the fox that were there and do some additional trapping to later sell the fur. I would like a baby pet fox. So as I said, the men were going to stay there over the winter and they ended up going back home for Christmas and everything was fine. They went back to the cabin for, they were going to stay for a few more months until basically the winter season was over. One of their, another friend or acquaintance of theirs named Alan Wilcoxon had actually stopped by the cabin on January 15th just to see the guys, hang out with them. And he said that everything was fine. Uh, there was nothing weird going on. He didn't see anything out of place. They weren't acting strange. And this ended up being the last confirmed sighting of the men alive. So winter goes by and once April comes around, family and friends of the men are like, they're not back. We haven't heard from them. We should probably go up and see if there's something wrong. So a group of three people go up to the cabin to check on them. Um, One of which is Owen Morris, who was Dewey Morris's brother. And then two other people, H.D. Ennis and Pearl Lines, who was the superintendent of a fish hatchery. I really don't know why these two people were involved. I'm guessing they were just friends of the men. But either way, these three people go up to the cabin. And when they get there, they notice that there are some nearby traps that had not been emptied. They find nobody in the cabin. They do see that all the men's clothes, guns, and equipment are all still in the cabin, though. And additionally, the um, kitchen table was set and there was still food on the stove, which had burnt um, and it was breakfast food. They also found the cat that had been staying at the cabin with them that was stuck in the cabin. It was still alive, but it was not in great shape, but they were able to bring it back to health, which made me very happy. Well, when you said that, I was hoping that the cat would be fine because there was breakfast food available. So I was like, maybe it ate the food to live on. But Mm -hmm. Cats also are really bad about having that brain power to know that they should stop eating. So if the cat discovered it, it probably just ate it all. Yeah. Well, that yeah, that's how it ended up surviving. It just ate on like the scraps that were around. To be honest, if the cat had died, there's a good chance I wouldn't have even mentioned it in this story. <laughs> but wouldn't have surprised. It me. is. Yeah. It is somewhat pertinent because because of all these things, including the cat and the state it was in, they determined that it'd probably been there for months. Um, maybe a couple months by itself 
without someone feeding it every day. They did notice that there was a sled missing and that um, the five fox that Ed Logan had at the farm were missing as well from their pen, but there was still food in the pen that hadn't been ate. So they didn't think like the fox had ate all their food and then escaped trying to find some. It seemed like they were taken. Um, They also found nearby the pen a blood-stained hammer. Now, before we go further, is this like a well-known fox farm? Like people knew that this existed up there and... I can't definitively say yes or no to that. What I will say is that it seems from all the articles I've read... Um, some newspaper articles from that time it seemed like a pretty small community where a lot of people knew everyone so it doesn't surprise me that like it wouldn't surprise me I guess I should say if a lot of people knew that they were staying up there for the winter and that they were fox there I know that people knew of these men as fur trappers as well and that you could they were part of that industry I wasn't sure if it was suspicious that somebody just shown up and stolen all these fox All their family and friends knew they were up there staying. It sounds like, I mean, they even had a visitor come up and see them. Um, If Ed Logan, who owned it, had them basically cabin sitting and was somewhere in town, I, I don't think it was uncommon knowledge. So they come back the next day and they bring Ed Logan, who's the owner of the cabin and the farm, and then they bring Deputy Sheriff Clarence Adams. And so at this point, they're like, well, let's go to the lake and see if we can find any evidence of them around there. The lake was only about a quarter mile from the cabin, so they walk out there, and they do find the missing sled that was on the shore of the lake, which usually was kept up by the cabin, so it was weird that it was just out there. It was covered in snow and had some bloodstains on it as well. They also nearby found the missing fox, or foxes. Erica looked it up. I guess it's both. (laughs) According to Google, but... According to Google. um, They had been skinned and the fur was missing, and it appeared to be done by someone who knew how to do it. Hmm, That's suspicious. Uh Uh-huh. I don't really know how much that went for back then, but I'm guessing quite a bit. Yeah, I was wondering that too. What year was this again? It was 23 and 24. So what they do see by the lake are some tracks that kind of lead out to the middle of the lake. They're very faint, like they had been there for a while, been snowed over. So when they go out there, they know that there's an area where you could tell there was a hole cut into the ice, which had refrozen. And they also nearby found some brown human hair, some blood, and a front tooth. So at this point, they're like, yeah, we should probably check in the lake, but it's still frozen. So they end up coming back the next day. I'm not sure why the process is so slow in this, but <laughs> they come back the next day and break up the ice and end up finding the bodies of all three men in the water. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I will say, on a side note, if the attack happened, it would have had to take a very powerful person 
or multiple people, I would assume, to be able to overtake three people. Or it would have had to be a complete surprise attack. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they, like, breakfast was cooking makes me think that they were all awake. Yeah, absolutely. That's, and we'll get into that a little bit later, too, especially after I go through kind of how they were murdered. Um, but I will note now with that statement that they were known outdoorsmen. I mean, they were able to live out in the winter in the cabin for months. One of them, Wilson, had actually been a former U.S. Marine. So it would have been very easy to subdue all three of them if it was just one person. The bodies had been wrapped in muslin, which was which is a, just a cotton fabric. And one newspaper article quoted that they had been fiendishly butchered. There's a freelance writer that lived in the area around the time who wrote about this. His name was Claude McCauley. And I'm going to read a quote about what he found at the scene. Quote, Ed Nichols still had his glasses on, the ones he used for reading. A shotgun fired at close range had carried away the lower part of his right jaw and part of his chest. A watch in his coat pocket had stopped at 10 minutes after 9. Roy Wilson's right shoulder had been almost entirely shot away by a charge of shot and there was a bullet behind his right ear. Dewey Morris had been wounded in the left elbow by a charge of shot and a hole a little larger than a silver dollar had been crushed through his skull at the back of his right ear, end quote. Basically, all of the men had been shot in the head with a revolver, had been shot at with a shotgun, and it appeared that um, maybe during everything, Dewey Morris had ran got away and ran and he was chased down and beaten to death with the hammer that they connected to the one that was found nearby the fox pen so a very violent one yeah very violent i'm still trying to figure out this is just me going through my head i'm still trying to figure out how many killers there were how many attackers i mean yeah going back to your comment with that the fact too that there was a revolver a shotgun and a hammer all involved like it makes that as well Yeah, it makes you think that there's multiple, but it also could point to maybe only being two people. One had a shotgun, one had a revolver, and then last minute resorted to the hammer because they didn't know what else to use. Right. And then something else to note from this is that Nichols' watch had stopped at 9, 10 a.m., which kind of goes along with the fact that there was breakfast foods burnt. So police kind of theorized that maybe um, they were making breakfast and for one reason or another, were lured from the cabin and then ambushed. The coroner concluded that they'd likely been killed in early 1924, so probably in January, late January, because they had been seen by their one friend on January 15th. Something I found interesting, actually, the coroner technically concluded that they'd been killed in late December, or early 1924 is what he says. But I feel like if you have that friend sighting at January 15th, probably wasn't in December then. Unless he's lying, I guess. Yeah. Somebody's either very confused on their timeline or somebody's making something up. Yeah. Something else that they determine because of the rough terrain and where it was located, they think that the person or persons involved probably knew the area and were at least somewhat well-versed in being out in the wilderness in the snow. So they did theorize that it was someone who knew that cabin and knew the men were at that cabin. Did they have any prime suspects then? They had one. His name was Lee Collins. He also was known as Charles Kimsey. Apparently, he had um, had some type of dispute with one of the men over some argument over a stolen wallet. 
He was also familiar with the area and he had been wanted in a nearby county, Deschutes County, for an assault charge and an armed robbery that occurred in 1923. And I will get into the details of that crime a little bit later. So we have this so-called spat between Kimsey and one of the men. Also, we have um, a witness or a couple witnesses who say that Kimsey had been around the area, um, the town nearby on January 24th, asking for directions to local fur dealers and carrying um, a sack, which the person assumed was pelts from whatever animal he was trying to sell the fur of. So he was seen on the 24th of January carrying the the pelts. And January 15th was when they were last seen by their friend Alan Wilcoxon, right? Correct. Yeah, so the timing is definitely suspicious. The fact that he was carrying around a bag of pelts as well. Definitely. Does not look good on his part. No. Um, so police are like, all right, we gotta we gotta bring him in and talk to him because there's at least something weird going on. We at least need to question him. And they can't locate him. He's gone. He had taken off. They had no idea where he was. And so police and investigators did put in a lot of effort trying to locate him. Um, they didn't have a lot of luck for quite a while. In 1933, they had located this one man who looked like Kimsey, and they believed it to be him. He was going by the name Bob Bales. But when they compared um, fingerprints, it did not match. Do we know why he went by two different names when we knew him in 1923, 1924? So, yeah, I can't remember which one is his actual name. One's his actual name and one's like an alias he went under because he was on the run for that assault charge and armed robbery. I think, I'm pretty sure his name was Lee Collins. And when they found him, he was going by Charles Kimsey, if I remember right. It just seems Um, suspicious. mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. They do, however, end up tracking him down in April of 1933. So 10 years after, well, about 10 years after the murders had occurred. He ended up providing some alibi for, I guess, the chunk of time that the murders could have happened. And it checked out. And police were like, okay, but we still think it's you. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. I think it's extremely suspicious that 10 years later this man can be like, oh, the night that these random people were murdered, I know exactly where I was. Well, and they don't even have a specific night. It was like a chunk of time. So how do you truly have an alibi for that amount of time? And please kind of like, they were... They were still sketched out by him. Um, He claimed he ran because he knew he was going to get accused of this crime. And he claimed his innocence. Well, it's 100 years later and I still think he's sketchy. Well, luckily, what police do have is the assault charge and armed robbery that he has yet to be officially sentenced with, basically. So what had happened? In 1923, 
Kimsey had hired W.H. Harrison, who was a cab driver, and he hired him to drive Kimsey to Idaho. And while on this drive, Kimsey attacked Harrison. He bound his hands and feet, gave him poison, and then threw him down a well and stole his car. So. You seem so friendly. Right. Not violent at all. Harrison's down the well. He actually ended up throwing up. So he threw up all the poison that had just been given to him. Oh. He was able to free his hands and feet and climb out of the well and get help. Which, like, hats off because holy shit. (laughs) I'm sure there's some trauma that follows that for the rest of your life. Yeah. But so this part I thought was kind of like a funny, not funny, but just like an ironic moment. They had Kimsey, a.k.a. Lee Collins, a.k.a. whatever, in custody. And what they do is they put him as part of a lineup. And to his knowledge... Kimsey had thought Harrison had died in the well. Um, He didn't know that he was still alive. So they bring in Harrison to pick him out of a lineup. And there's like um, an article that's commenting on Kimsey's face where he just like looked like he just shit his pants and saw a ghost. (laughs) It's so funny as you're saying that. I was like, I would pay money to be there to see the look on his face when that supposed dead man walks into the room. Mm -hmm. I mean, they don't even need to really... I think they end up going to trial, but they really don't need to. Harrison's like, yeah, that was him. So he's found guilty and he's sentenced to life. He was found guilty after just three hours of deliberation. And he had been sentenced to life imprisonment in Oregon State Penitentiary. But he actually ended up getting released in 1957 and lived out his life in Idaho, I guess. I don't really know exactly what happened the rest of his life. He's likely dead now because of the time but he was never officially connected to the lava lake murders a couple things i just want to like point out that i had when i was researching this case if you want to try to connect kimsey to it he had had prior issues with the men he likely knew where they were staying he knew that they had fox up there so that he could steal some pelts and get some money from it He had a history of violence, wasn't afraid to murder. And I think the fact that he was seen in town asking around for a fur dealer to sell a bag of pelts right after they were last seen alive. Like, to me, it seems like he was involved. I wonder, though, if he had other people involved as well. Well, like we had talked about, I mean, it almost seems like you would have had to have at least one other person to help you. I do think, obviously not that I want to condone him or anything, but I think it was really kind of dumb of him to try to sell that in that town because you said it was a smaller town. So I think that that was dumb on his part. Helpful, obviously, in solving the case, which I would rather have. Dumb criminals are my favorite. <laughs> but I a t-shirt that says that. <laughs> dumb criminals are my favorite. We should New merch idea, guys. Yeah. Dumb criminals <laughs> are my favorite. But I just feel like... He definitely seems extremely suspicious. I'm glad that he eventually got life in prison, even if it wasn't for this specific. Yeah. Murder. Yeah. Well, murders, I guess. I mean, he was still released, but at least. He at least served served some some time. time. Yeah. And was sentenced to life in prison and probably had that fear for a moment. Mm -hmm. Other than that, there have been no other confirmed suspects or leads on this case. And 
since it happened in 1924, we have not seen any other developments other than the Kin- other than the Kimsey developments. And to this day, this case remains unsolved. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 